So hello and welcome to the CSF Rheumatology Author Interview Podcast. My name is Professor Peter Nash from the Griffith University in beautiful downtown COVID-free Brisbane. And today I'm joined by our international colleague, Dr. Lee Simon, who's the principal scientist at SDG LLG Cambridge in USA. Welcome, Lee. Great to have you to, here today. And thank you so much for giving up some of your time to talk about this paper we're about to discuss. Um, and we're going to be discussing a paper that's uh, recently been published. Um, and it's talking about the JAK inhibitors and it's talking a little bit about um, pain, uh, a focus of pain in rheumatoid arthritis. It's in seminars in arthritis and rheumatism. So let's start with you, Lee. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, you and where you're working and what you're working on and how COVID has interfered with your life? <laughs> well, hi, and welcome to everybody who might be listening to this, and thank you, Peter. Uh, so I am obviously a rheumatologist and internist in Boston. Uh, my uh, work address is in Cambridge, although I re regularly work from home anyway, and that's in Newton, Massachusetts, where they invented Fig Newtons. Uh, Massachusetts has uh, been replete with COVID-19 for a while. My wife and I were not 75. Neither of us have not gotten a vaccine yet. And setting up the situation and trying to call in and getting a vaccine appointment is absolutely absurd. So um, we've been told waiting on online on the web trying to get this vaccine appointment. Sometimes we have 7,500 minute wait. That's uh, pretty interesting. So anyway, that, that's all interesting. I. Um, presently work uh, as a drug developer in the context of helping people get their drugs approved, um, analyzing evidence, you know, perusing all the material, helping them design their clinical trials. And one of the reasons I do that is I have been an FDA division director of analgesic anti-inflammatory and ophthalmologic drug products, although that's been about 17 years. Uh, and it's amazing how time flies when you're having a good time. Uh, my group and I have had uh, 19 of 20 drugs approved that we worked on in the last 20, uh, 17 years or so, uh, and not all in rheumatology. So that's all been very interesting. But pain has been a very important interest of mine. And I think that this paper underlies a significant problem that we have uh, in the context of taking care of our patients. I cared for patients for 30 years, uh, and I can certainly appreciate the context of what patients suffer. So if you want to start, I can start talking about that. Excellent. So this is this is an important paper. It's looking at the JAKSTAT pathway and focusing on pain and rheumatoid. Um, you know, we noticed particularly with the RA beam study where baricitinib for the first time with methotrexate beat the gold standard of adalimumab plus methotrexate. And what drove the difference, what was statistically significantly different, wasn't swollen joint counts, it wasn't ESR or CRP, it was physician global, patient global, and pain scores. And that was a fascinating thing because these drugs are said not to cross the blood-brain barrier, at least in animals. So can you set up why you looked at this review and uh, start telling us a little bit about what this paper looks at? 
So I was um, the um, editor or basically the co-author of a um, monograph in 2003, which the treatment of chronic pain and chronic arthritis by the now defunct American Pain Society. And when we sent this around, it was like 100 pages or so of the literature. And we sent it around to our 300 reviewers. Everybody came back and said, oh, we, we don't have a problem with pain anymore. We have TNF-alpha inhibitors at that time, or TNF inhibitors today, and they don't have pain anymore. I didn't believe that, and I still don't believe that. So uh, it's gotten increasingly complex, this issue of where pain might be coming from in patients with rheumatoid arthritis. We now have three different kinds of pain, nociceptive pain, neuropathic pain, and what's now called nosoplastic pain, which is what used to be called central sensitization. And clearly, anybody with chronic inflammatory disease, like cardiovascular complications, they also have changes in their brain. And the changes in their brain are the resetting up of the network or brain plasticity. And in fact, we have evidence in other circumstances, but not in rheumatoid arthritis yet, um, that people who have chronic pain develop this change network so that the chronic pain, the stimulus for the chronic pain, the, the inception reason that you have chronic pain is taken care of, and they still have chronic pain. Well, why is that? Well, that's, we believe, related to the central sensitization. So when the barasitinib people started to think about this, with, and I served as a consultant about this, um, they were thinking they should compare against adalimumab, not because they were interested in the pain, but because they were interested in a marketing story. And lo and behold, whoa, we saw something that popped out that most people didn't believe. They thought maybe it was unique as it related to the way the trial was designed or some other reason. But the issue is, if these drugs and TNF inhibitors and methotrexate in some patients uh, actually ablate a lot of the inflammation, the SED rates fall or CRP falls, other aspects of inflammation change, the fatigue changes, but there's still either damage related to the previous inflammatory process or central sensitization or this nosoplastic change that takes place. And so then we started to think, well, maybe what we should do is look at all the cytokines that are associated with inhibition. And of course, this is at a time where treat to target became the major issue. And could you actually identify one particular cytokine and then drive the disease down as we're doing, but then the, why do the patients still have pain? So the purpose of doing the original experiment, comparing against the TNF inhibitor, was not because we understood the science or even knew to look, but now that we knew to look, it turns out the other JAK inhibitors have been doing the same kind of experiments, and they're corroborating the evidence. So it appears that the JAK-STAT pathway, because it's higher up in the cascade, uh, seems to have a lot of potential effects, and then we had a look at all the cytokines. And since this is a cytokine signaling forum, it seemed that there was an appropriate thing to think about. And of course, what came out from the literature search, and you wanted to know how we did that, well, we did that quite extensively, looking at every single possible word you would put in to then be able to search on. And our review 
consisted of a lot, a lot of papers. And we had a very good time thinking about this. And then it turns out the Jack Stack pathway has facilitatory effects and anti-nociceptive or anti-nosoplastic effects. So I issue a Pandora's box of trying to understand how all of this works. And then I happened to be consulting for another company, and we were looking at GMCSF and its effects on osteoarthritis pain. And it was really interesting to study the effects of GMCSF on how it might actually stimulate pain. And then we began to look at all the various different levels. And one of the diagrams in our paper looks at where these things may be acting at these different levels. And it now appears that doing targeted therapy with a direct TNF inhibitor may not be enough. And we may be needing to hit other aspects of this, which one, I don't know that we know exactly. And the JAK-STAT pathway is convenient to study because it does all these different things. And I think that um, it really has educated us to recognize that our patients aren't totally uh, taken care of but what we thought before. Now, we now know 40% of patients, at least in the US, either lose response or don't respond to a TNF inhibitor. So what does the durability of a TNF inhibitor mean? And also what does the nosoplastic changes mean? And should we be thinking about drugs to alter the nosoplastic effect? And if we do, what does that mean? Obviously, that has to get into through the blood-brain barrier. It's not clear that a JAK inhibitor oral therapy by modulating uh, JAK-STAT uh, needs to get into the CNS. It may just be fine to alter the local cytokines, who which have these signaling benefits or not. Years ago, I worked on uh, a pain drug that uh, actually had been studied, and we knew it altered glial cells. And we now know that the glial cells surround the synapse in the brain, and that the glial cells generate IL-6, TNF, and TNF, IL-1, and several other cytokines, probably IL-10, as a modulator of the other pro-inflammatory cytokines. And it seems to alter synaptic behavior. We tried to alter that with the therapy we tried in 2006. And although we had all the side effects, we failed in altering pain. But it seems like a lot of people are now thinking about targeting the glial cell to alter perhaps the nosoplastic effects. And that may be, that may be an important cell uh, that plays a role in this nosoplastic or this changing pathways uh, in the brain. I'll so stop there for the moment. Thanks very much. So there's a lots of interesting issues you bring up. Can you just um, go back to neuropathic and neuroplastic? How should we understand the difference between those two? And is there a time course? Does neuroplastic start straight away? and Or does it build up <clears> over time so that there's a certain irreversible point reached where you won't be able to change what's happened a bit like chronic renal failure, you get to a stage where it's, it's relentless and irreversible. 
So I'm just trying to understand the difference between neuropathic and neuroplastic. So the nociplastic changes that take place, let's start back at MS. So yeah. what we've learned from MS story is that brains actually shrink in the context of MS. Well, that's interesting. And then some people started to look at MRIs of people with chronic pain where they actually had a previous MRI that didn't show or wasn't associated with chronic pain. It was very early. And it turns out chronic pain is associated with shrinkage of the brain mass. So this re-networking that Clifford Wolf years ago uh, postulated in chronic pain uh, seems to be very different than neuropathic pain. And it's a result of either neuropathic, which is by definition a damage to the nerve, peripheral nerve, or nociceptive, which is damage to the viscera or joints or other things, that this nociplastic is not damage to the brain nerves, it's reorganizing of the brain nerves. And it's reorganizing of the signaling in the brain so that many people believe that you don't actually need to have actually any further afferent input that actually causes you to have pain. Why do we have pain? Pain is a protective event for us. Um, so you put your hand in a flame and it, it hurts, you pull it back. You touch a hot surface, you pull it back. Chronic pain is not that at all. It doesn't have the purpose of changing your behavior to remove it. And it, you can't control it often from where it's coming from. You know, people have chronic osteoarthritis pain. They can control that by sitting down, for example, and not walking. But in the context of rheumatoid arthritis, um, that disease is ongoing. But if you squash the inflammation, is that enough? And I think what the evidence shows is that there's probably, and if using something called pain detect, which is a questionnaire, or doing QST testing, which is allowing you to, to actually determine what might be neuropathic versus nociceptive, by doing that, those testing characteristics, it begins to teach us that the damage to the joint not only leads to pain because of nociceptive changes, but also because of neuropathic input. You're damaging the nerves around the knee and in the knee. Uh, it's interesting because one would wonder whether anti-NGF, nerve growth factor, the drug that's being developed around the world to treat osteoarthritis pain, is highly successful, but yet is associated with, in fact, destruction of the joint, depending on the dose that you use. Many people believe that's a Charcot joint. So therefore, you're actually having a major impact on the effect of the neuropathic component of osteoarthritis and the nociceptive component. And whether or not you're also having this major impact on the nociplastic effect, that remains to be seen. Is so, there a time course? I, Is there a time course and an irreversibility to those nociplastic changes? We don't know. But it's a very interesting question because it doesn't happen right away. It doesn't happen in acute pain. It happens in chronic and the FDA believes chronic pain is defined by being there at least 12 weeks. Uh, whether that's really the way to define chronic pain remains to be um, determined. But clearly, chronic pain is, you can almost infer it's a separate disease. That whatever's causing the disease, rheumatoid arthritis, 
is rheumatoid arthritis. But the chronic pain associated with rheumatoid arthritis may be unique and not entirely controlled, even though you might control the inflammatory component of the disease. And uh, I had postulated the idea that chronic pain may be a separate syndrome or disease associated with many other diseases. Um, many years ago when I was at the FDA, many people were skeptical. But I think nowadays we're getting to the point to think of this as an independent event and that we need to start to think about how targeting it correctly. Maybe even with the new evidence associated with tofacitinib and the safety issues associated with that, whether that's extrapolatable to UPA or baricitinib remains unclear to me and everybody else. Only time will tell about that. But it may well be that JAK inhibitors, not as a class, but as individual inhibitors of JAK, maybe a TIC2 inhibitor, they might be unique drugs. And it may be it's important to combine an anti-inflammatory, profound anti-inflammatory targeted along with perhaps yet another drug to directly uh, attack this nosoplastic chronic pain component. Well, it, it raises lots of interesting issues. We know that peripheral nerves are full of IL-6 and GMCSF. Do you believe that these small molecules could be taken up in the peripheral nervous system and have a profound effect on pain, similar to tenesumab and anti-nerve growth factor that you were talking about? Can this be a peripheral nerve effect, not a central effect of JAKS? I think it's probably a peripheral effect but the signaling is changing. And as a result of the signaling changing, when you signal apparently up into the central nervous system, there are things that take place up there because of that signaling. If you go back and think about the non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, which have their own unique component, we now believe that if the, the signaling goes up and at the thalamic level, it actually upregulates COX-2, which then leads to more signaling in the brain. So the reality is, is that it doesn't matter whether it gets into the brain or not. It matters whether you modulate, perhaps mitigate in some circumstances, the signaling. And it's the signaling that leads to the changes in the brain. And you want to modify the signaling. The other issue is with IL-10, which is, a, which is um, against all of these other pro-inflammatory uh, cytokines, IL-10 may actually increase the F or efferent signaling from the brain, thus squashing down some signaling below that also may be signaling up, leading to more sensation of pain. IL-10 is a very interesting product. Um, a company just submitted an abstract to Orsi that actually thinks about uh, using a plasmid to inhibit, um, to, to actually promulgate IL-10 over a long period of time in the joint. We'll have to see whether or not that really is an interesting effect. And if it does, it begins to think about changes that may really alter the sense of how we uh, alter brain signaling by altering peripheral signaling. So we've been, as clinicians, using pregabalin and gabapentin and tricyclics in post-hepatic neuralgia, painful peripheral neuropathies, very neuropathic diseases. Do you think, or is there any evidence that those kinds of therapies will have a positive effect 
on noisy plastic pain. So we actually looked at that. We tried to find literature that would talk about a, you know, Elevil and Batryptoline to look at gabapentin. We couldn't find anything that posited the possibility that that may be the way they are working. But I do think that now as we begin to develop some of this stuff, we're going to be seeing some more things. P2X3, P2, P2X3 inhibitors, for example. Um, there are some people who believe channel blockers, uh, NAV 1.7, 1.8, uh, maybe those things that'll do better. I'm much more skeptical about the NAV 1.7, 1.8 than I am about the P2X3 inhibitors. They might be doing something that we yet do not know. And furthermore, there are other people that have been studying other things. And it may well be that the blood-brain barrier is not intact in chronic ongoing pain. It may be that there are issues going on in the brain, IL-6 elevations, uh, TNF, IL-1, that alters the blood-brain barrier. And maybe that's why, partly why anti-NGF works up there. Uh, so I, I think we're just beginning to learn all about this. And the other problem that we have is how do you measure widespread pain or nosoplastic change? And there are several now uh, patient-reported outcomes, widespread pain index and other things that when they're now applied at an experimental level uh, to some of the industry-related trials, we're going to begin to learn a lot more about the impact of widespread pain. And instead of saying, well, our patients with lupus also have fibromyalgia, it may well be what we have is widespread pain because of nosoplastic change and not fibromyalgia. So I think that this is getting really interesting. Mm, I agree. And I think uh, I recall years ago, Georg Shett did some MRI studies in patients starting TNFs. And before swollen joint counts had changed, before ESR had changed, they had positive central effects on pain that he could visualize with an MRI. Has anyone done that kind of study with JAKS? I don't think they've done it, although I'm, I'm sure the industry's looking at Dan Claude's group at Michigan who does that kind of work with a regular functional MRI. And, uh, and George may also be talking to people about that. It would surprise me if he wasn't. Because um, I do think that, remember, a, a JAK inhibitor will inhibit ENF. So uh, downstream. So it, I do believe we were going to be seeing a whole bunch of really cool stuff coming out as we begin to learn about this a lot more. So I looked at um, Barry raised the question. UPA does exactly the same thing. It separates not based on swollen joints. It separates on pain scores, position and patient global. Philgo does the same. So it's it's a sort of class effect, if you like. Um, but I also looked at the ACR components in PSA. And the effect is not as clear in PSA, no matter how chronic the disease and how much the damage, the jack effects do not do the same ACR component differential like they do in rheumatoid. Why would that be? PSA with chronic damage should have noisy plastic changes. Well, it may be driven by different cytokines that we still don't yet know. I mean, IL-17 doesn't work, inhibitors don't work very well in rheumatoid arthritis, but they work 
incredibly well in psoriasis. Uh, and it may well be that we're beginning to see differences. Uh, I was quite pleased to see a different outcome measure for measuring psoriatic arthritis instead of using a rheumatoid arthritis outcome measure like ACR 20, 50, and 70, despite the fact that the FDA applied that originally. I think it's really important to recognize that psoriatic disease is a different disease. And we may be seeing that in lupus, the entire network of all of this is totally different. And a JAK inhibitor, which might work in lupus, Barry's been studied in lupus, um, may well be that that's not the perfect drug. So I think that we're back to the drawing board and trying to understand the impact and implication of all these changes. And I'm very happy to believe that we're getting away from phenotypic descriptions of our diseases and maybe recognizing the molecular natures of these diseases and that they're different. And uh, I think that's a very important step. And do you think that there's any development of an objective way to measure noisoplastic pain? I don't think there's an objective measure that we've yet been able to develop to measure pain per se. No matter how we cut this cake, pain is going to be a, subject, a subjective experience. My wife, she never, never used to get Novocaine for, for teeth work. I can't go into a dentist's office without being put to sleep, let alone getting Novocaine. So it's a subjective experience. And I think we need to learn how to deal with that. And maybe someday, um, I don't think there'll ever be a commercially available MRI test, but in clinical studies and in other ways to look at this, I think the functional MRI will be a very important way to look at this question. Um, many years ago, uh, there was a group of people at the Brigham here in Boston that did fMRI on patients with fibromyalgia, and the definition of the disease, the, con the diagnosis was made by Tom Goldenberg, a real expert at this. And then they took about 15 of those patients and they took uh, 60 people at the Brigham that were normal. That's a, open to debate whether they're really normal or not, but that's not <laughs> the question. They didn't have fibromyalgia. And therefore they did fMRI on these people by doing an infusion of insulin, dropping their glucose down to 40 milligrams per cent. And the reality was every single patient uh, who had diagnosis of, FM, uh, of fibromyalgia actually had an abnormal FMRI, fMRI, which was exactly the same picture, the same pattern. And in fact, not one single person of the 60 had the same pattern. So if physiologic stress led to the abnormality of the fMRI, which was consistent in the fibromyalgia patient. That's telling us something. What it is, I don't know yet. But it's definitely telling us something about how the brain is processing this physiologic stimulus. And I do believe that in the future, that's going to be an important component of how we think about this. So we better start studying jacks in uh, painful peripheral neuropathy, chronic regional pain syndrome, postopedic neuralgia, etc. I'd like to see that. I'm not entirely sure the companies think that's the way to go. Although, although Lilly a couple months ago announced by their CEO that they were the pain company. Maybe they'll do that. I, I don't know. <laughs> topical jacks? Well, there is a topical jack being developed called Jackafee, which is for myeloplastic disease. 
and it's being developed for atopic dermatitis. Uh, it would be interesting, but you have to keep it separate. A topical is not systemic, theoretically, whereas you know, topical transport as a systemic therapy may be something that's quite interesting. Uh, so the Jacopy is being developed uh, as a topical for, a for atopy, and we'll have to see what the meaningfulness of that is. It'll be interesting. It will. So can you just give us a take-home message for the practicing clinician from your review? How should it influence clinical practice? I think we need to rethink how we believe targeted therapy is supposed to work and recognize that we should not be frustrated when our patients have a CRP or a sed rate that's fallen, that tender and swollen joint counts are down to one or two, and the patient still comes in complaining of pain. It may be in their head, but it's not like what we used to think in their head. And I think that's very important for clinicians to recognize that it needs the correct attention. Doesn't mean we need to give them opioids, but it does need, mean that we need to think about the implication of what's going on. Thank you very much. So just something from left field, any link between noisy plastic and the difficult problem of fatigue? Well, that raises a big issue. So for patients years ago, when TNF inhibitors first came out, fatigue was a major part of some of my patients with ankylosing spondylitis, particularly the women who had it. This is anecdotal. And here I go, gave them a TNF inhibitor, not approved, and their fatigue was ablated within one dose. I don't find the fatigue in rheumatoid arthritis ablated by a TNF inhibitor with one dose, but I do hear from anecdotal reports of people that were involved in the original clinical trials for the JAK inhibitors that that often was the first thing that made that got better, and they got better within two weeks. That doesn't happen with TNF inhibitors in rheumatoid arthritis. So I think the fatigue is different. We don't measure it well. I'm involved with a group trying to figure out a new PRO, looking at promise, a promise fatigue, that actually might be a better way to look at this in rheumatoid arthritis. We'll see. Well, this has been uh, the CSF Author Interview Podcast. We thank Lee Simon very much. Wonderful to hear your um, discussion about this review paper. If you'd like to know more about this paper and others uploaded to the CSF website this month, you can get detailed slide sets are available in the publication section at cytokinesignaling.com. Please subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts from. Please tell your friends about the podcast if you think it was of value and of interest and give us some feedback and let us know what you think. Thank you so much, Lee, for your time and trouble. We greatly appreciate it. Thanks, Peter. You all take care. Be well. Bye-bye.